Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just 29 euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and joining me once again are Michaela Hole from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. How are you both doing this week? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. Brussels, normal week, kids on holidays, but not me. And I've just been walking for three days in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, if you don't know what that is and where that is, it's it's uh, sort of moors and hills in the north of England. Very beautiful. Very windy and cold, though. So I, I'm actually quite happy to be back in the office. <laughs> Absolutely lovely place. A lovely uh, part of the world there, Jan. Uh, this week, we're talking about green hydrogen. The debate around hydrogen in the energy transition rages on. It seems in little doubt that some form of green hydrogen produced using renewable energy to power electrolyzers will have some share of final energy in a net zero scenario. But just how much of a share is still up for debate. There's also a potential for a new trade network to be established that differs from today's existing gas market. This creates huge uncertainty, but also significant opportunities for businesses and governments the world over to leverage a whole new industry. Our guest this week on the podcast is Sarah Edmondson from Australia-based developer Fortescue Future Industries, a company that solely focuses on green hydrogen and ammonia production. To discuss where she believes this sector can make a difference, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today on What Matters. Well, thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Diving straight in then, why is Fortescue focusing solely on green hydrogen and green ammonia? And just quickly, does ammonia have an important role in the future of green hydrogen? So, well, actually, I would I would argue that what we're focusing on is really renewable energy and green fuels. Um, and so hydrogen obviously plays a key part of that. And very often green hydrogen, whether it's actually storage for um, renewable electricity or whether it's actually used in a new green fuel as hydrogen in its natural state or maybe, you know, as a derived product, for example, with you know, coupled with nitrogen to create ammonia or coupled with, um, you know, other chemicals in order to make synthetic fuels, uh, sustainable aviation fuels, et cetera. Um, you know, we're trying, we're really looking at the whole suite um, of products. And that is primarily based out of our need um, to decarbonize our own operations. Um, so this was not just kind of a, a random selection uh, made by looking at, you know, what maybe what are the high growth opportunities, but actually the, the genesis of Fortescue Future Industries is actually based on our decarbonization strategy that we were working on several years ago and realizing that whilst we might have a lot of zero emissions technologies developed in time to be able to use um, to, to be able to, to, to use in our operations, we wouldn't have the green fuels we need to power them. Um, and so ultimately, that's where Fortescue kind of came out of um, um, its rationale to sort of embrace this new, um, this new industry and effectively this, um, this important change in our energy system. And I know you're focusing mainly on, on green fuels, as you say, and, and green hydrogen, green ammonia. Uh, is blue hydrogen or any other color hydrogen 
can that still be considered as a bridge fuel to a fully green hydrogen uh, sector in the future, or is it? Are you simply making? Why are you making that jump straight to green now? Right, which is it's, we're kind of leapfrogging in, in in some ways. And do you know? I think in the first instance, we're in the first instance we're very blessed because we don't have any legacy assets. Right, we're not one of the um, big oil and gas companies that ultimately has these enormous legacy assets, which are on their balance sheets. Right, I do appreciate that, and they ultimately want to use them. They also have incredible, you know, um, very highly skilled professionals that, you know, would have the ability to start tackling, you know, carbon capture and storage and other um, other technologies. At Fortescue, it is our belief after we, we've we've obviously seriously looked at the opportunity to procure then not to do it ourselves, but to procure blue hydrogen and realize that actually we don't we don't have a strong belief in the. Um, technical capability of carbon capture and storage. We've got some serious concerns. I appreciate that there's many different parts around the world. Geology can be quite different. So there's going to be areas where it may be more successful and areas where where it will be less successful. But in Western Australia in particular, we've had a very, very negative experience with carbon capture and storage, um, where we we have a very large project, which has been um, in some ways, a, a real disaster from from in terms of performance, and so we we have the let's say the privilege to be able to go directly to green. We also feel that we want to be advocating for other companies to do the same. Those that don't have those legacy assets again, or don't have some other sort of vested interest in, interest in going blue, to go directly green, and that is on the basis that we've had thousands of hours of conversations with the different um, equipment providers and technology um, uh, providers, many of, of, of which are European, right, and are world-class. And all of these companies, the electrolyzer manufacturers, the balance of plant, the other systems equipment manufacturers, all of them have a very clear roadmap. And ultimately, by scaling up, we're going to see those costs come way down. So why would we not take all of our the, the funding that we have and money that we have available and go directly into green and just leap leapfrog to the end solution and not try and invest. And then again, find ourselves with stranded assets, find ourselves with legacy assets that then becomes an issue to manage, you know, because you're, you know, it's the write-off on the balance sheet. There's many implications, right? Um, to, to, to trying to leave these, these assets in that in-between phase. So we believe that actually everyone's going to be a lot better off if we leapfrog directly into the green, um, move that, you know, move down that cost curve and make energy as, um, quite frankly, as affordable and as cost competitive as quickly as possible. May I come in here? Um, because I'm, I'm delighted to have someone who's very outspoken um, against fossil-based and the performance of uh, what we've seen so far. Um, so, But what is your strategy exactly? Because if I look at the European discuss- discussion around hydrogen, there's no denying that the parts of the industry that have the assets you were talking about, you know, the gas and oil sector, have taken over part of the narrative, I would say, one could say so. Uh, right. You come from outside, you're quite outspoken. So what's your strategy then in order to counter this hydrogen being used for other purposes? Like, do you have some allies? I guess for you as someone from outside, only been there for two and a half years, it's also not so so easy to enter this policy discussion space, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we know, I mean, that, you know, there's between lobbying and advocating and whatnot, you know, we're, we're certainly competing against a very well-organized industry, right? Which I actually, I came from that industry, right? I spent about seven years in oil and gas. And so I do understand that. And I do understand the issues that they're ultimately, um, um, you know, that they're challenged with. But at the same time, I think that, you know, if we continue to speak truth and speak loudly, but also to me, it's really about trying to get the equipment manufacturers and those that will be providing the kit necessary to produce green hydrogen to come out and really firmly say with conviction, we have a a cost reduction roadmap. We will be able to achieve it. In fact, we've even seen with the offshore wind industry that they, you know, (laughs) The, the 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 cost reduction roadmap that they had was something that was over a 10-year period and they achieved it in five years. So very often, actually, the performance is even better than what a lot of these companies are saying. But I think that they are the ones that really need to be able to stand up and, and, and say to governments, to the decision makers, we can do this. We can truly make this the most competitive hydrogen on the market. Because at the end of the day, the blue hydrogen or the, you know, or any sort of hybrid solution, if you will, even nuclear, over time, those costs will ultimately rise, right? And the, the operating expenses around it will ultimately rise. And renewable energy, we know, is the only energy that is always moving in structural decline, right? So again, why not just go straight to the end game? Let's put all of our the funding that we have in a proven, effectively a proven technology, but go straight there. Instead of taking 10 years, we take five. So it's really about getting, I think it's really about getting uh, decision makers comfortable with the progress that can be made. And it, it's really down to the, the equipment manufacturers in that instance. But you would agree that we are not there yet, at least not for the EU area, which no. you were in charge of uh, until very recently, right? I totally agree. And actually, I also, I can understand how politicians will think that by allowing all hydrogen, you're going to really... Um, underpin this new economy, right? It's all about reaching that critical mass. And I can understand how they would think that, but I think that in the end of the day, they're going to find that they will take longer and spend more money again, because you're putting yourself in a situ- situation where you are effectively creating stranded assets, and then you're going to have to manage that, right? Um, so so I think that, that, that very, the governments are very much um, in this situation of crisis, they're looking to reach the volumes. And I think that we see, for example, you know, coming out of Norway, coming out of the Netherlands, you know, there's some there's some big promises there in terms of very large volumes of blue hydrogen. And I think that, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of think that that is going to, again, underwrite um, this new hydrogen economy. But I, m- my guess is that, again, it, it, it'll just delay and cost more. I would like to um, ask you a follow-up question about the scalability of green hydrogen and how quickly we could see large quantities of green hydrogen replacing also existing production of uh, fossil fuel-based hydrogen with no carbon capture. So the the IEA produce, um, I think, regular reviews now on hydrogen. Uh, The last one, I think, is from, from last year, actually. And they have figures on the production of different types of hydrogen. And I just looked it up 
um, to remember uh, the, the the figures for green hydrogen, and it's 0.04% of global hydrogen production is currently green, according to the IEA. Uh, 99% plus is based on mainly steam methane reforming with no carbon capture using fossil gas, and there's also some black hydrogen using coal. So it's it's a tiny slice of the total hydrogen production. And um, at the same time, we're seeing those huge promises from policymakers that we will have vast amounts of green hydrogen. How realistic is it that we can scale green hydrogen production rapidly? You know, and we're talking about um, you know, millions of tons of green hydrogen just being used in Europe alone. I think it's 20 million, 10 of which would be produced domestically and 10 of which would be imported by 2030. So how realistic is it that we can scale this industry uh, within a short amount of time to the levels that some of the policymakers uh, tell us will be possible? So I would I would respond to that, Jan, saying saying two things. One is what's what maybe will be our reality, which is not necessarily what was what is achievable, and then what's realistic. Um, I, I I wholeheartedly believe that if we were to very decisively focus on getting green hydrogen right production and development going and put all of our energy into it, I believe that we could we could be delivering several million tons. We, just Fortescue alone has committed to 15 million tons by 2030. So I would I would argue that there is a there's a real chance at having you know commercial scale volumes flowing into Europe. I think though what our reality might be could be different on the basis of what Michaela was saying earlier that there is still um, quite push quite a lot of pushback um, from from I think the oil and gas world and and others that ultimately the kind of the existing incumbents, if you will, that are going to be more reluctant to change. So it's going to really depend on the, again, the, our ability to demonstrate with conviction, with facts, that this is achievable. And it's not just the developers. It has to be the developers coupled with those equipment providers, because at the end of the day, that's where most of the cost savings, right, are going to be derived. Um, we can do our job extremely well, but ultimately, the the price of the of the kit, you know, is gonna is 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 a key component to um, um, to any delivery strategy. So my guess is that if we aren't if we aren't moving now with conviction, we will find ourselves with a lot of blue hydrogen out on the market uh, towards 2030. That's my concern, and I feel like we've kind of done that um, in different, you know, with different examples in different industries over time. We sort of catch ourselves instead of making instead of making the right decision early on. We kind of we find these hybrid solutions that end up again costing us so much more. So I do hope that this might be perhaps with obviously the Russian invasion, we are dealing with an inflationary crisis, we're dealing with a climate crisis, we're dealing with an energy crisis. Um, I'm hopeful that decision makers will really have a listening ear um, and, and, and allow us to be able to again, um, to come in and really show that this can be done. Sarah, if I may come in. So you mentioned you have your company, the company you represent, has the objective of 15 million tons of um, of hydrogen by 2030, yep. which is massive, which yep. would be three quarters of the overall EU target that Jan just referred to. And uh, if I calculate roughly in my head, would represent 700 terawatt hours of electricity, more or less, or in capacity 
something around 140 gigawatt of of renewables capacity. So it's massive. Yep. And um, can you enlighten us a little bit on which steps you have already taken towards this uh, ambition? Like how much renewables capacity you're owning. And uh, I'm asking this because I read a lot about uh, FFI and what I've seen is plenty of agreements and memorandum of understanding with various off-takers, with various uh, technology holders, with countries, with um, but somehow financial investment decisions have so far not been taken. So if you could tell us a little bit um, what the next Absolutely. steps are towards Absolutely. this ambitious goal. Can I start out maybe just by saying two things? Um, in the first instance, that's absolutely true, Michaela. And I think that 2023 we're going to see is going to be the year where the, the rubber really hits the road in terms of our actual development and the FID decisions. Um, we have spent the last two and a half years um, effectively moving in hyperspeed um, to pull this together, to pull the projects together, obviously acquiring land, securing power. But then there's obviously the permitting um, and other steps that are required and that will take time, right, in order to um, to pull a portfolio together. But in 2023, um, we'll start to see the first FIDs taken. Um, indeed, we've targeted five um, across four different continents. Uh, so five FIDs on five projects, one of which will start production in uh, 2024. And that is because that's in Eastern Australia. It is a um, partnership that we have with Incitec Pivot. It's an existing ammonia plant. And so ultimately, we only have to strap on the electrolyzer piece. But one thing, if I may, to just respond to Yan, which I, I totally agree, when you look at what the International Energy Agency is saying in terms of where we are and just how challenging it is to uh, to step up. I would also argue that the International Energy Agency has let us know that we need a minimum of 80 million tons of green hydrogen by 2030 if we want to stay on a 1.5 degree trajectory. And I think we all on this call would, um, being you know, very familiar with the argument, know that it's extremely unlikely, if not mathematically impossible, for us to stay on a 1.5 degree trajectory on the basis that we're already at 1.3 degrees. However, we need, at this point, it's about staying at least under two degrees. We cannot, we simply cannot allow um, a situation whereby we're not producing tens of millions of tons by 2030 whether it's Fortescue or many others, but we've we've got to be very decisive, come together. And quite frankly, it, is it challenging? Yes. But actually, when you look at many other industries, even oil and gas, again, where I come from, it's not as challenging to build out the renewable energy. The issues are primarily around permitting, around um, you know, kind of global supply procurement. These are things that can be worked through. It's not about trying to drill, you know, 4,000 meters below ground and then, you know, move into some sort of horizontal, um, you know, completion, which is, I think, in many ways, technically a lot more difficult. This is really about getting the permitting sorting sorted out, um, getting obviously the regulations, the Delegated Act, for example, to me, um, is going to do an enormous um, um, um uh, it's going to have an enormous positive impact in terms of just kind of creating a little bit more certainty around what's going to be considered green. Once we kind of start getting the dust, dust to settle a little bit, 
I think we can see an enormous scale up. I would like to um, ask you a, a question about a, a slightly different but related topic, which, sure. um, and I mentioned the 10 million uh, tons of green hydrogen that the European Union would like to uh, see being delivered as imports by 2030 already. Um, and we're seeing you know, ministers and other policymakers um, making those deals that Michaela has alluded to and signing memoranda of understanding around the world and you know, saying there will be lots of hydrogen that will be imported from, from countries sometimes very far away uh, from Europe. And Uh, yes, some some people um, have said this is looking very much like green colonialism was the term that I have seen people yeah. use. And to give you a specific example, I went to COP um, to the climate conference in in Egypt in November, and I checked the electricity mix in in Egypt, and it was about ninety five percent from oil and gas, so very very carbon intensive. But there were plenty of projects uh, announced um, at COP in Egypt about green hydrogen that would be exported to Europe and other places. Yeah. Um, so that is, I mean, is that something that we should be doing, building renewables in countries that have a very dirty electricity grid and then using that electricity to make green hydrogen and export it to rich countries? Is that, is that, is that the right thing to do? Uh, or are there ways of actually making some of the benefits available to the local economy and greening, greening their energy system at the same time? Um, what, what's your take on all of that, Sarah? Well, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting comment, Jan, and I I totally I again I can just see where where the concerns rise, but I would argue that when you start picking it apart, sometimes it's not so obvious. So, for example, um, I wholeheartedly agree that you, when in in countries that have not only not only do they have um, you know a power system. Um, that's you know heavily reliant on oil and gas, but they also have a growing population, and you know and and they need to be thinking through how they're going to um, you know certainly look after and decarbonize their energy system for today, but also for tomorrow. But but in many instances, actually, we forget just how important the grid infrastructure is to be able to take on this new renewable energy. And, and, and be able to deliver it to their power systems. And these, this grid infrastructure is, is, is almost always extremely expensive and very time consuming. So I would argue that we would be, we would, if we were to, to remain completely ideological, we'd be in a situation where we would be sitting around for 10 or 15 years for that grid to be built so that that renewable energy would be able to service the power system. When we could actually take that green, we could build very quickly and produce green hydrogen, which can also be consumed um, domestically. I don't think we always have to consider there needs to be an export market. If we can actually get down the cost curve, that's going to be very, very affordable energy for the existing country. And in fact, that's probably one of the biggest concerns I have is that very often the developers are almost automatically going into this kind of export um, approach. And I can appreciate that, you know, that it, it, the, the perspective is going to be that Europe is going to be one of the, you know, lo locations around the world, one of the markets around the world that can pay the green premium. But, but again, once you start moving down that cost curve within a few years, 
it could be that actually that's cost competitive even for the domestic market. So I would hope that offtake arrangements and offtake contracts are going to be, certainly there's going to have to be a component that's going to be long-term to get the financing for the project, right? There's going to have to be a component that allows the project to become bankable. But I would hope that there would be also a portion of that production that gets an earmarked for domestic consumption, because it is, I I wholeheartedly agree with you, it's a major concern. You don't want to have a situation where the developers are effectively coming in, using the resources, which historically we've done, using the resources and then, you know, taking them from the global south to the global north. This is something that green hydrogen, here we have an opportunity to do it differently because we've seen it done wrong for so many decades. And there's a, 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 a great organization called the Green Hydrogen Organization. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, which is um, this run by uh, Jonas Moberg, um, who was the CEO of the um, Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative um, for close to a decade. And his first focus, actually, as he took over um, uh, this, this, as he took over the chief executive role in that organization, was to come up with something called good contracting principles for green hydrogen. And it's really just focus on the developing world. How do we make sure they don't get left behind? And how do we make sure this green colonialism, if you will, um, which is a habit of the North and it's a habit of the West, doesn't just take over. We need we need to think this through and do it differently. If I may add, just this week I uh, I read on Twitter by someone commenting uh, the European Commission was talking to Egypt about hydrogen and she was commenting, great, they're talking about green uh, renewable hydrogen without talking renewables with them. So can you be a bit more precise how you, because I think you also have a memorandum of understanding, if I'm not mistaken, with the same country, like, do you talk renewables with them? And then just before you said, I would hope that some of this development would also be used domestically. I I would hope it's more than hope. (laughs) And there are some precise commitments. Absolutely. So can you enlighten us a bit how you go about these discussion. Sure, sure. Well, well, Fortescue, at least, for example, I mean, Fortescue has a deep commitment to the communities within which it operates, right? And that's a legacy that it's carried for the last 20 years. So at Fortescue, I guess when I say we, we, so I hope, I'm, I'm really hoping for the industry, obviously for Fortescue, we can, you know, integrate that directly into our offtake strategies. And again, you might find that it for the first couple of years, Right. There's no immediate market, but you need to have you need to make sure that integrate deeply integrated in your offtake strategy. There's an ability to claw back, for example, some of the um, some of the uh, molecules once that domestic market opens or once as a as a as a portfolio, a few projects right are 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 on stream and over that portfolio, you're able to bring the average cost of production down once that becomes more accessible to be able to supply it to the domestic market. So at Fortescue, we think like that and we are integrating that in our global offtake strategy. The the rest of the industry I, I wouldn't be able to comment. I don't know. I, again, I would I would encourage them. And this can also be something that, you know, countries specifically can directly mandate um, or encourage or incentivize in some ways. And I think that, you know, when we look at, for example, production sharing agreements in the oil and gas world, there's been a lot of development, a lot of lessons that we've learned from that, that we can ultimately apply to 
um, to the green hydrogen industry. So, and yes, we do have, um, we have a framework agreement with um, the Egyptian government and we're effectively, it's, it's very early days. This was signed at COP, uh, where Jan was uh, just uh, a couple months ago that was signed at COP27. Um, but ultimately, we're still very much in the scoping phase and ultimately just want to um, see what opportunities are out there. We would absolutely be open to building renewable energy to be used as uh, a power to, uh, to, to grid play. So we'd be very happy to build you know, um, solar or wind. I'm, unfortunately, I'm not as informed as to what I'm solar for sure, but I'm not uh, not uh, fully informed as to what you know precise development we're envisaging there. But the idea being, whatever renewable electrons we would generate, we would absolutely look to also provide that as an option. My my concern though would be, is the grid ready to support that, and would there be a grid connection readily available? My guess is unlikely, no, for the first 10, 15 years. Hi, everyone. Me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, what about... Um your home market of Australia, obviously a much more developed market, um, has bigger, you know, fairly well established grid, um, and but also huge amounts of renewables potential um, there, specifically solar, I'm, I'm thinking, but also wind as well. Could Australia become a country that's much um, a big hydrogen exporter? Uh, is that something that Fortescue are looking into, that the government looking into it as a potential revenue stream? And could Australia perhaps be powering the world through green hydrogen and green elect- green electrons through ammonia and hydrogen and those sort of things? Sure, sure. Absolutely. And, and actually, Australia is kind of is, is a nice example because here we don't have the same issues with, um, you know, severe um, disparity um, in terms of access to electricity and whatnot. Obviously, Australia is a very um, industrialized, um, a very, you know, you know you know, quite wealthy country um, per capita, um, which is also blessed. I mean, it's a it's a country, but also a continent that is blessed with extraordinary resources across mining and metals and oil and gas, and also renewable energy. And um, there's a, there was an incredible study that was done by the German and Australian governments. It was led by Academia. It was a two a little over a two year um, effort. It's called High Supply. And it was there was uh, it was a, did an extraordinary job in involving industry within that study, and effectively what they were able to see, also looking at the renewable energy potential of Australia, was that um, the solar irradiation is phenomenal. It also has this coincident wind that comes in at night, just as the solar, uh, just as the sun is obviously setting, and if you covered only three percent of the of the landmass of the Australian continent you could power Germany's energy needs, entire energy needs, times 10. So the potential there is phenomenal. I would argue, though, at least Fortescue has a bit of a different view in terms of how the global development and how we should see the green hydrogen um, economy evolve. We would like to see more production closer to the markets that that are going to consume it. So certainly Australia has that potential. 
I, I would say, yes, we do see a government, not just the federal government, but also state governments are really starting to wake up to see that there's a huge opportunity for them to start exporting green fuels. Um, but my guess is that there's going to be the first, you know, five or eight years where, you know, there's going to be, you know, shipments that are going to be moving um, to different parts of the world based on where, you know, where the, where the market is keenest. But then over time, we actually see Australia very much serving the Asia Pacific region. It's going to be Korea and Japan and, um, you know, those those much larger markets in the north that don't have the potential um, to produce that green energy themselves. So, so again, yeah, I would see there's there's an enormous potential for export. Um, it has the opportunity. I mean, it's just you know, renewable energy is a broad acre play, and there you have you know massive amounts of of um, of land um, with you know stable ecosystems that would be able to um, to host these renewable uh, generation buildouts. But over time, I think it's probably going to be a market that ends up just getting dimensioned to that that those Asian uh, those Asian needs. Just to be sure I understood. So you just said that basically the Australian sun will most likely be transported in a more, in a regional, more regionally, and it might not be getting to Europe because I remember yes, Robert Habeck was term, so excited to get some term. sun from Australia to Germany. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I do think, I do actually, I do think that in, in these, in this early phase that we can say from here to 2030, I think this early phase, um, we will see, um, at least even because we have uh, some strategic partnerships and some key customers. So we will see shipments coming from Australia. Forgive me, Michaela, what I was trying to say is that long term, long term, could Australia power the power the world? Yes. But long term, I would see it actually being kind of dimensioned more towards the, the markets that it will serve in, in, in 2040, 2050, 2060, et cetera. Is that partly because Europe are going to be developing their own domestic supply and because have the I renewables think, and electricity? I think, I think that's right. I think, well, I think Europe, but I think also we'll see a lot coming out of Latin America. We'll see a lot coming out from Africa. And Fortescue has, you know, projects um, uh, in, in, in both continents. Um, so what we're trying to focus on is not just to have an Australian portfolio that services our global clientele, but really develop projects in North America that will service North America, in Latin America and Africa that will most likely be in excess of their existing needs and so be exported to um, to Europe. And then Asia, then Australia, again, Australia is going to kind of help kickstart this industry. And it's kind of like LNG in the very beginning, right? You would see shipments that weren't necessarily optimized in the beginning, but over time, 10, 20 years into it, the the, the shipping uh, optimization obviously is, is going to become critical in terms of re- remaining competitive on the market. I would like to um, ask you about the practicability of, of, of actually shipping hydrogen or hydrogen uh, derivatives. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a pretty long and detailed article by Michael Liebreich that came out in mm-hmm. December. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, it's yes. titled The Unbearable, Unbearable Lightness of Hydrogen. And he looks at some of those challenges associated with shipping hydrogen. And one of the things that he points out is that if you liquefy hydrogen, first of all, it's quite energy intensive. Um, and it's also not the same gas uh, liquefied as, as uh, LNG. You know, you, you're dealing with a, with a very different 
um, uh, product and and has that, that has his own challenges. So he makes the point about liquefying hydrogen being quite challenging. Uh, and he says a lot of the hydrogen um, that will be transported will probably be transported in gaseous uh, form, not in liquefied form. And then finally, uh, I think he makes the point that ammonia might be um, a derivative that's much easier to transport and and could be could be used um, in in some applications. So, what what you know? Can you can you talk us through kind of your perspective on the practicability of actually being able to physically move vast quantities of of, of hydrogen from one place uh, in the world to another? No, that's that's an excellent question. And I would argue, again, here, you have to be um, a little careful because the answer might change depending on where you are geographically. Um, when you look at compressed hydrogen, for example, so shipping it in a, in a container, um, you know, when you look at the work that's been done by Hydrogen Europe, by IRENA, by the International Energy Agency, you know, effectively, that is a, a transport solution that works in very close proximity. Um, but when you start looking at long long distances, and again, we are going to primarily, I think, see a lot of um, a lot of renewable energy being shipped from the southern continents to the north. So longer distances, we're going to be needing to look at um, at ammonia um, as the as the solution in terms on the basis that the energy density um, of ammonia is such that it just it makes it makes the most economic sense, and that it's also going to be a growing market at the same time, because we see that ammonia is going to be used in very energy dense fuels, for example, like bunker fuel for shipping, um, and even actually we're working right now with Deutsche Bahn, um, but we're also working at it um, uh, in, in our own operations um, on. Um, um, so using ammonia to power um, internal combustion engines for the cargo rolling stock. So obviously you want to electrify the regional trains, electrify the smaller trains, but then you have a lot of cargo rolling stock that simply cannot be electrified. You need a much more energy dense uh, green fuel and ammonia um, is, show, is looking very promising, both in our own research and again, that combined with Deutsche Bahn in, in terms of being a solution. So I would say, I would say, yes, ammonia on the basis that it has a growing market and is probably economically one of the best um, transport solutions. I, I, I would say that, yes, that's going to be the default. Then you would have to change. Then you're not the green hydrogen company or the green ammonia company. Not sure if it sounds as sexy because everyone loves the hydrogen hype. Um, but for example, if you... Uh, um, it's true that if you ship ammonia, it gets a bit better uh, for the efficiency because uh, it, it's better storable. But then you run into trouble once you hit the coast because if then you still want to offer your clients the hydrogen, you need to crack it and then you are down at the same efficiency losses as shipping hydrogen. So basically it makes most sense to use ammonia directly and not transform it once again. I'm asking this because uh, one of your most prominent memorandum of understanding, at least for me with my maybe German lens, was this agreement you had with E.ON. Yep. And I guess E.ON doesn't expect ammonia. They want the hydrogen and feed the gas grid, which Jan and I probably have question marks for other reasons. But basically, I mean, Ammonia is best used as a feedstock directly as it is, or maybe stationary, but ammonia will not feed a grid. So I'm just asking this just to find out, so what is the strategy for Europe now? 
No, it's such so because at the moment it seems a lot of pets. And as I say, ammonia will probably not make Aeon happy. Well, sir, I mean, I think that that's it's a it's you're, it's an excellent point. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you if you go back and even just look at the press release, the real focus for Aeon um, has been to service those small and medium sized enterprises. Um, so you know they've got 50 million customers, but actually many people forget that a large portion of them are industrial users, and they do need some. Actually, you know, there's going to be those that would also they're not currently buying ammonia as feed, you know, as feedstock from Eon, but could. So there's probably a small market there where they could, you know, ultimately be, be providing ammonia as a feedstock solution for existing ammonia users. But you're right, the app, the, the, the end game really for them has been to be this aggregator and supplier to, you know, the, this middle stand, this, this, this kind of small medium, um, these, what were, what are also called kind of the hidden, uh, the hidden champions within the German economy, right. Who are maybe providing a componentry to Porsche, the, the car manufacturer and Porsche has set a climate target for, you know, 2040 and, uh, or 2030 even. And, you know, ultimately their expectation is that everyone in their supply chain is going to start making progress on climate targets so that they'll be able to meet theirs. And, and, and you see that there's a lot of these smaller companies that individually were not able to have a, a strong enough voice to be able to, to, to access solutions. So that's really where what, what Eon wants to be focusing on. You're absolutely right. Um, I think on the ammonia cracking piece, um, I think that we will. I, I agree that right now, when you look at the existing technology, which still hasn't been scaled up, we're looking at you know efficiency losses that are around you know twenty percent, right? So it's it's significant. Um, but I know that we for, we for example are working with Siemens Energy on a metal membrane te technology for ammonia cracking, which we believe um, is going to be uh, much more high performing. And again, needs to get scaled up. So I appreciate that we're not there, and I can appreciate that there can be some skepticism. But we are making very smart, deliberate steps towards addressing that issue long-term. And I think that there might be, again, there's going to be a little bit of inefficiency around these first project, these first investments. But over time, again, so long as we've got that, co you know, the, that cost roadmap again, that ultimately shows how we're going to be able to increase the efficiency and reduce the overall cost, I think we'll find ourselves in a much stronger situation by 2030. Um From which sector do you, because uh, I said already that you're actually talking with very diverse players, Airbus, Deutsche Bahn, a bit, no? From which application or sector do you, do you see the highest willingness to pay? I'm asking this because the think tanks, as you know, they have strong views on where the hydrogen should actually be going mm. and that there are low temperature heat users where ideally it shouldn't be going. Also not into the passenger cars that you always see on the brochures of green hydrogen companies. That's also not where we want it. Um, yeah. And then as a second, so first of all, do you see a different uh, willingness to pay? And then as a second question, I assume that for you is part of your strategy, not to look, um, I mean, you have to make sure you, your, your hydrogen will be taken by someone also beyond, let's say, a subsidy that ends. So you would have to look at those 
that will be will, not willing right. to pay the most. Right. Just trying to understand a bit how you see that at the moment. You know, it's, it, well, I, and this is something I think about every day. And it's been interesting to live these last two and a half years between, ultimately, yes, there was COVID, but even um, during COVID, if you recall, before the Russian invasion, there was also an in, ensuing energy crisis, um, right? That effectively had, you know, seen, um, we had seen the cost of energy within Europe. I'm talking, of course, but within Europe, the cost, you know, obviously were skyrocketing. And then the Russian invasion that almost, you know, that ultimately, um, um, you know, enhanced that even further and created effectively almost a full year of instability. So we're working in this kind of high inflation environment and um, and companies obviously are coming out of that vulnerable state of covid and, and the, the energy, that kind of shorter term, but energy crisis before that. So it's really interesting because I've, I feel like over the last three years, the willingness to pay has moved around quite a bit. I think there have been times where there's been where companies and industries have been much more bullish um, than, you know, again, moving into state of vulnerability, less bullish in terms of what they'll be able to take. And then now actually just working in this higher inflation environment, there's almost a an acceptance, if you will, that, you know, energy will just simply cost more, whether it's gray or whether it's green, blue, whatever. Um, I would argue in terms of the willingness to pay, when you can find ways to spread that green fuel across many customers. And so in terms of what it looks like on their over portfolio, it is only a quota. It is the 5, 10, 15, 20%. That's when your willingness to pay is the highest across many different industries, actually. And then it's more, It's the question is not so much about what is the willingness to pay like a snapshot for the industry in 2035. It's what is the willingness to pay for the first, you know, the, for the first 10%, what's the willingness to pay for the, for the first 20% and then kind of moving down to a complete substitution. And this is where I have to say that glass bed, Gas blending, and I completely agree that you know there's a lot of concerns around residential use and 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 using it for heating. I, I fully agree with that. The uniqueness of gas blending is that is it is an enormous demand sink and also solves the storage long term storage issues um, that are characteristic to these early years of the hydrogen industry. So. If you look at the ability to spread, for example, you know, 10% uh, hydrogen blending into a gas grid spread across millions and millions of customers, their willingness to pay is actually quite high on the basis that it's the incremental cost is tiny. Of course, as that blending increases, that changes. So this is not a long-term solution in my view, nor is it kind of a permanent solution. But in those early days, it does help really get the industry in a position to where it can start scaling up because it's this enormous demand sink, again, that can be spread across many customers. Similarly, as we're looking at customers uh, in Europe and other parts of the world, we're looking for those industrial clusters where they can share that green fuel amongst five or six different uh, customers. So it, it's not one customer, single customer trying to take it all on themselves, but say five or six that are maybe blending 10% of their ammonia feedstock or 20% of their ammonia feedstock. And that is allowing us to be able to place our product initially while it still costs more. Over time, of course, once it's competitive, it becomes uh, a very easy market to sell into. 
so um, the bl- I mean, the blending discussion is interesting. Um, I think one uh, for two reasons, uh, at least two reasons. I think one one is that even if you got to twenty percent. Um, blending, uh, which is currently what is being seen by many people as kind of the upper limit um, for for blending, 20% hydrogen blend. Because of the very different um, energy density per volume um, of of hydrogen, you're only going to get maybe 7% carbon reduction, even if all of that hydrogen is green. Um, yep. And at the same time, and, this, less. and at the same time, uh, this goes back to my earlier point. You know, when we look at current global hydrogen production, ninety-nine percent plus is highly carbon intensive, and the carbon benefit that you're getting by just cleaning up the existing mess that is hydrogen production, to be to be quite frank, um, yeah, you, you, is, is much larger. So you're getting more more carbon emission reduction by replacing. Uh, current gray and black hydrogen production than replacing uh, your fossil gas in the gas grid. Um, And then um, ultimately, in many areas, gas use is projected to decline very significantly to the point where gas grids will get decommissioned. So is that really a good use of, 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 of funds that we collect from all customers to blend in um, you know, hydrogen in in quantities that you know, may be significant to scale up the industry, but really don't have a significant carbon impact. And I would add, you don't even have to, you don't need that for scaling up because as Jan just said, you can clear the current one. There is no need to find somewhere space to park your hydrogen for scaling up. You just use the current gray and black and replace it. That That allows you to scale immediately. I think that 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 the issue is that when you replace the current ammonia feedstock, for example, it's it is more challenging than that on the basis that again, it's actually only a few customers that end up having to kind of fund the scale up, um, and and quite frankly, some of them might even you know Covestro, for example, is extremely ambitious and aggressive in terms of tackling not just. Um, you know, circular economy, but also their climate targets. But of course, they are, you know, they're going to be simply unable to take on, you know, the highest cost ammonia during those, during those early years, right? They're going, they need support, they need to be able to share that cost burden, that green premium burden with other members of the industry. So I would, I, I, I completely recognize that in terms of the um, uh, emissions abatement, using gas blending, it's really not so much about the emissions abatement because it is disproportionately less than the actual gas blending, right? I totally get that. But I would argue again that it is it allows when you when you crunch the numbers though, you do see that the incremental cost for the end user is tiny. And again, it allows you to spread it across so many that you really will be able to get um this scale up up and moving. I just I feel that that um Again, it's not necessarily even when you look at you know gas ultimately being replaced, um, and you see this increase in electrification. Um, I I know that we need to go in this direction, but there are a lot of challenges to actually rolling that out. It's going to take enormous investments in our grid 
um, not just on stability services, but even just in strengthening the grid to a large degree in order to roll this out. And so I just would see that there's this decade, this decisive decade of of, of what we have, which is what, seven and a half years left um, or, or, or seven years left in, in, in 2020 uh, to, till 2030, where we cannot wait to make these decisions because ideologically we're not as comfortable with them. And I get it. But they're actually those steps that would allow this launch, this this launching pad that we need to get these projects up and going. And then you'll find yourself where maybe you no longer are needing to blend that 10 percent. You've actually you're, you know, you've, the average cost of production has come down to a degree where all of a sudden you can feed into the covestros and others of the world. But they're paying a market price, which is going to allow them to remain competitive with with their own customers and within um uh, within their own industry, I, I think it's naive to believe that then at some point the, the you have blended and then oh now industry needs it now we pull it out again. I think it's totally naive. And also Agora has done calculations that once you start blending, you actually cannot meet the demand that would only be derived from these EU targets that are currently in discussion. You know to have these renewable hydrogen shares for transport and industry. Once you start blending, you cannot cater for those needs. So I think there's, uh, there is still, and I have to say also as you as a hydrogen company, I think it should be in your interest to not start delivering to the one corners. Fraunhofer did a study last week where they modeled around willingness to pay and customers. And they basically said uh, they predicted in which year uh, a user would drop out and basically change to the cheaper solution, which is electric heat pumps in the building sector. So basically, you're you're betting on the wrong horse. You see what I mean? I mean, you're scaling up for nothing. That's what a very interesting study. Does Fraunhofer or was it? Fraunhofer? Yeah. yeah, it was Fraunhofer's study. Yeah, I think that overall, though, I mean, I think it's it's clear that we have you know a, a massive need for green hydrogen at, at Fortescue. You know, we certainly believe that if you can use an electron, use an electron, right? Don't don't you, green hydrogen's not the the panacea, but there's going to be a huge chunk of our economy that is not going to be able to be electrified directly, right? And there's a lot of industrial processes. There's a lot of customers out there that are going to need massive amounts of green hydrogen. We, for example, are working with Vostopina and Prime Metals. Um, Vostopina is one of the um, you know, great historical um, you know, steel manufacturers in, in, in Europe. And they're going to need, just like all the steel manufacturers, very, very large quantities of green hydrogen. And they're landlocked um, in Linz and Donovitz, and they need, they need that hydrogen to get transported in an efficient way to their steel mills. They need it. And so maybe it's on the other side, they need an extraction technology that will allow you to extract purified green hydrogen, right, at the end of the pipeline. But they need this in order to decarbonize their steel industry. And when you look at the legacy of these companies and you look at the also the, the economic value, right, to the, to the entire European economy, I would say it would be it would be very sad indeed to see them effectively not looked after and for a uh, you know a viable strategy to not be put in place within this decade. I totally want Rustalpine to be looked after. I wonder if you can look after them if you give five million tons to Eon. But okay, enough. <laughs> Probably let's move on to another topic. 
<laughs> well, equally Blending one. is really not a good topic for Monday morning. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we'll quickly move on. I just wanted, um, Sarah, if you could maybe talk a little bit about the um, Inflation Reduction Act in the US and whether that's had any sort of impact on your business. Has it made you perhaps focus your attentions more towards the US and away from Europe? Um, and does, therefore, does Europe need to do something in order to attract you back to, to its shores? Yeah. Well, I mean, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the Inflation Reduction Act was um, a game changer, I think, for Fortescue, but many other companies. And, um, you know, we do see that the, the com- both member states as well as the European Commission, you know, obviously recognize that um, that it was a bit of a game changer, not just in terms of funding availability, which is enormous, but also in terms of simplicity. It's in fact, I think the simplicity, which is maybe maybe perhaps the most attractive element um, for a lot of investments. So certainly Fortescue has made the United States a priority. Um, we are aggressively building a team and building a project portfolio there. In fact, out of our uh, five projects that we um, that we're aiming to reach FID within this calendar year, um, you know, at least two of them, if not more, will be from the United States. So I think that um, it's it's undoubtedly a um, a game changer for but whether it's green hydrogen or anyone that's really operating in, in, in manufacturing and clean tech. I do see, though, again, that there is a recognition on this side of, of, of the Atlantic to, um, to try and facilitate this green industrial revolution, which was effectively, you know, the, the political manifesto of uh, Ursula van der Leyen when she became president. And obviously the European Green Deal was, you know, her initiative. So in many ways, the Europeans are actually further ahead in their thinking and in their, and in their efforts and in their initiative. The, the, the main, um, struggle has really been around simplicity and being able to get the funding because there's a lot of funds that are actually available here too. It's just that it's very difficult for companies to be able to access them. And so we need to, in addition to try and manage all of their other, you know, daily struggles. So I, it, it feels, I'm, I know we're not there yet, but it does feel like we're moving uh, in the right direction. I think, you know, there's a, a, a specific task force um, that within the commission that's been dedicated to working with the U.S. government in order to kind of understand what the key lever- levers are going to be and make sure that all of those, which I would argue to a large degree, have already been created in Europe, really start getting used in earnest and, and quickly. Um, but that said, we do see actually a lot of investment flow that's kind of moving towards um, moving towards the United States. And that is because there is actually a lot of funding out there. There's a lot of finance um, available for green projects. And so it's really more about just getting these projects underway. How, how quickly can we make them shovel ready? But it doesn't necessarily mean that you would, it's not a zero-sum game, right? I mean, you are looking at the European market where we Absolutely. have a, a guaranteed market share in the area of industry and transport as things look now which is the best pool you can have. Um, And as you just said, hydrogen servicing will be regionally. So the fact that you now probably do, let's say, three projects more than originally anticipated in the US does not mean you're not doing the planned investments in Europe. Do I understand you correctly? That is 
That is absolutely right. So it's not a zero-sum game, and certainly we'll do a lot more than three projects in the United States, right? That's going to be a huge growth opportunity for Fortescue. But I would say, absolutely, we are. that does not mean that we are not as focused on Europe. And Europe has this incredible legacy of whether it's technology providers, research, development. So there's there's a, a huge wealth, a huge patrimony here that we we want to continue investing in and will continue investing in. So I totally agree it is not a zero-sum game. But Fortescue's resources, manpower, money are limited. There are, they're, not fine, they're not infinite. That's true. So does it mean perhaps that the development in Europe is going to take slightly longer because those resources have to be split between North America and Africa and Australia and, and you know, a very global industry. Uh, because the IRA is such an interesting and such an um, incentive-based piece of legislation, your resource is going to go there and therefore not be in Europe and therefore take longer in Europe to develop those projects. So, I mean, absolutely, we, we our resources are not you know limitless, and there's obviously a lot of internal competition between the different regions um, in order to get these. It's a healthy competition, of course, but in order to get these mm. projects, and 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 um, and really just you know these massive green hydrogen uh, molecules flowing into the market. Um, but I would say that if we see in Europe, if we do see a step change where it's not cutting corners, but being able to run, run for example, permitting processes in parallel or effectively scaling up, truly scaling up the manufacturing capability, something we've been talking about for a long time. Companies have the plans, but they need to be able to have the comfort um, that to, to be able to execute them. Then I would say that actually that 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 it'll that both Europe and the United States will collectively go from strength to strength. And I also think that in terms of the breakthroughs that we need in order to get the costs down, by the scale up that will happen in the United States can only benefit Europe and vice versa. If we scale up in Europe, all of the all of that, all of that knowledge and learning and technology development will only go to complement the other. Um, the other economies. So I actually think this is something that could be kind of a, um, a virtuous circle, if you will, so long as Europe makes sure that, you know, we really focus on that simplicity side to the to the extent possible and may be able to get the funding available. There's a lot of small, extraordinary companies out there. Um, there's a there's one, Enaptor, there's a, the co-founder has, has kind of quite famously said, you know, I need four people, four resources fully dedicated just to grant funding in order to access it full time all year round, right? I mean, it is, it just can be quite laborious. And I think there are ways that we can just streamline and be much more efficient. You have uh, experience with applying for, for EU funding. Uh, one of the projects, IPSES or Innovation Fund, IPSE, I should explain this in this podcast. This is one of the most horrible acronyms around important projects of European interest where basically you get a state aid waiver, right? Or the Innovation Fund. Has FFI applied or intends to apply? I assume that's not so straightforward for someone who doesn't have a, a member state it, no, because mostly they right. are member states endorsed. So if I, you are Australia, that should be a problem, right? Well, I mean, I think we still, I mean, we have, you know, legal entities, you know, throughout Europe. And so, and we are very actively working to establish a presence in here, in, in Europe, both physically by, by being here, but also, again, by actively working with different um, uh, players, like you mentioned before, the Deutsche Bonds, the Airbus, Vostopini, et cetera. 
Um, but we, so in this year in 2023 will be our first uh, grant application that will go in for a Norwegian project, um, which is um, actually a very exciting project that I personally was able to um, uh, to follow and to, to, to kind of help push along these last two and a half years and hopefully many more to come, Michaela, many more to come. Great. Um, we're coming to the end of our time together. Thank you so much uh, for your really interesting insights, Sarah. Um, one thing we ask all of our guests is if they could look into their crystal ball, what does the energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time? So I think, well, I think that what we, the energy landscape in 10 years will be very different from the energy landscape in 20 years. Um, my expectation is that in 10 years, we're going to see a lot of sort of hybrid solutions. Um, and, 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 and that could even be a little discouraging um, because we'll see maybe there's going to be, again, you know, there'll, there'll be blue hydrogen flowing in with the green. Um, there's going to be a lot of companies that are still maybe kind of struggling just right there on the, um, just on the fence in terms of whether they're going to make the big investments to convert their industry to a zero emission technology, for example, steel, right, going the DRI route or, you know, Deutsche Bahn that ultimately has to convert their entire fleet of rolling stock and buses and coaching coaches. And, and you know, they've got this incredible vehicle fleet. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of companies that are just right there on the fence. And so in 10 years time, we're going to maybe, we're going to see just a lot of hybrid kind of old energy system and new energy system kind of competing a little bit. But my guess is that in 20 years, we will have very, the entire energy system will have shifted to clean energy. And that is based on a lot of conversations that I've had with, um, you know, different, the the chief executives of a lot of these different leading companies. So my guess is in 20 years, we will have seen the final paradigm shift, if you will, it, energy systems completely rethought and finally implement, implemented. Really interesting. Um, before we go then, uh, I'd like to go around the table and ask what caught my eye uh, in the last week or so. Uh, Jan, let's start with you. What caught your eye? Uh, it was data from, uh, I think it was Simon Evans who shared it. Um, it, it was the famous or infamous uh, um, you know, graph showing IEA projections for solar Deployment um, over the over the last ten years or so, and then actual deployment plotted against it. Um, so there's an updated version of that, and surprise, surprise, it shows once again that uh, in reality we've built much more solar than what was expected by the IEA. So that was my piece of the week that caught my eye. Really interesting. I, I think a lot of it um, this comes down to uh, the price of solar going down and people being more interested in, in having rooftop solar particularly and, and secure supply, um, especially at the high prices uh, that we've seen in the last year. Do you think, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's been the key the key driver f- for sure. But uh, yeah, I think it's just the the, the the sheer reduction in cost is just phenomenal. Yeah, when you look at um, what the IPCC has said, uh, I think it was an eighty five percent cost reduction over ten years, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sarah, what caught your eye in the last week or so? Well, I hate to sound very boring, but I would say it was the delegated act that <laughs> is finally. <laughs> It's been, uh, I would say, it's been a long period of agony for the green hydrogen developers. And the fact that we now have clarity, as well as a little bit of flexibility 
um, until 2029 uh, was certainly something that caught my eye and encouraged me actually extensively because I don't think that we realize it's been so long and drawn out and painful that um, I think we, we can almost lose sight of just how valuable it is to have clarity um, on what will actually be considered green hydrogen. And, and my guess is that this is going to be something that will um, send, it, it'll be a confidence building exercise for developers, policymakers, um, off takers, just kind of across across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Clarity always uh, helpful in most sectors uh, that we seem, seem to see, especially in energy. Uh, Michaela, what caught your eye? Well, now we only need the clarity also for the US. Huh? You don't have it there, mm-hmm. but you're confident enough, apparently. Um, I need to defend the IA after Jan just said that IAs has been historically always underestimating the role of solar. Uh, what I saw is uh, their own analysis uh, that we have a new record of one trillion fossil fuel consumption subsidies, so the highest ever recorded. Yeah, which means Mm. we are still a long way to go. I mean, we had this moment that uh, investments in wind and solar were higher than in the fossil capacity, but still, I mean, the overall picture um, still needs a lot of change. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that uh, report as well. Um, and I guess a lot of it was partly because of the energy crisis and the war in Ukraine and people trying to, you know, governments trying to shore up their energy supplies uh, at a time when uh, the supply from Russia wasn't there. So people, the governments were spending and su- mm. supporting the fossil fuels industry uh, in that sense. But obviously, yeah, still not very uh, encouraging Um Mm. And we're, we, we seem to be very much moving into a much more uncertain mm. world, right? A world of permacrisis. Mm. And so if we aren't, if we don't really stop and reflect on what Michaela just said and, 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 and appreciate um, what that funding could have mm. done in the green energy space, right? We'll never, we just allow the crises to kind of constantly, um, you know, reroute our focus on, on, on green mm. energy. Um, so this is this. That's a very powerful. It's a very powerful. Absolutely. Um, just finally, then for me, uh, what caught my eye? Uh, obviously, the uh, the IEA report there are on fossil fuel subsidies, but also um, a, a um, Vestas, the wind turbine manufacturing. A manufacturer um, put out a, a statement looking into blade circularity, and they've made a breakthrough in a chemical process that makes um, turbine blades more circular uh, without having to like, completely break them down entirely um, or, or like burn them or send them to landfill. Um, so really interesting uh, upgrade there. I know it's a important aspect for the wind industry is their recycling and the, and the circularity of the turbines uh, once they are retired. Um, and so seeing seeing this uh, progress are uh, really uh, encouraging for the wind turbine industry. So um, yeah, great to see that. And if you want to read more, you can find links to all of our What Caught My Eyes uh, in the show notes. So please do Uh, check them out that's all we have time for this week my thanks to sarah jan and michaela if you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast you can reach us on our twitter accounts i'm on at dave w underscore foresight sarah so our our twitter is at fortescue future lovely thank you uh michaela at citizen sane one and jan at jan rosenau you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all again next time. <laughs>